going to get your Bibles, turn to Isaiah 63. I want you to think about what would happen if God did not constrain evil. What if there were no consequences for any of our sins? What if the, if the world was allowed to do as it pleased with no consequences? What would the world look like? Think of an undisciplined child who, who runs unfettered, causing all kinds of damage, and we've all seen them, to the people around them and the objects around them. Think about the, the pain and, the, and the, the suffering that's caused by someone who doesn't even care about the consequences, don't even consider how they affect somebody else. This person would have no regard for any of the feelings of anybody around them and the needs of those around them. And I ask you this question because I'm going to make a statement that seems kind of off-center in our human way of thinking, but in God's mercy, God sends judgment. In His mercy, He sends judgment. Now, we think the other way. We think that if God is merciful, God takes judgment away from us. If God is merciful, He gives us good things, but the reality is that judgment is a good thing. It's rather odd on the surface, but if you think about it, the judgment of God keeps evil from spreading uncontrollably. You see, God is a righteous God. God is a good God. And in His anger, He destroys But his anger is not like our anger. We're told not to be angry. We're told not to have unrighteous anger in our hearts. And I learned from last week that I have to turn this down. There we go. If we have unrighteous anger in our hearts and we let that out, we're sinning. God has every right to be angry with us. He has every ang- every reason to be angry with humanity because we have chosen wickedness over righteousness. I, I've just finished the first part of a book. It's a, actually a two-book series called One Nation Under Blackmail. And my head is spinning from the amount of information that's in this. And we, I'm telling you, we live in Sodom and Gomorrah today. It's no wonder God, I, we, I, don't know, I no longer pray for God to bless our country. He won't. Because in the halls of our leaders, it's nothing but debauchery. It really is. There are, there are those, believe me, there are those who are in the midst of it who are godly people and they're trying their best. But they're going up against a system that has given itself over to the evil one. That's just what I've been reading, my opinion. And God destroys in his angers, as I said. And so God's going to act in judgment because of his righteousness. So when we experience bad things, we need to turn to God and we need to give him praise for his kindness toward us. 
Now, could you imagine that? Could you imagine having a child that when you discipline them, say, hey, Dad, thanks for, thanks for spanking me, or thanks for discipline, thanks for taking away my, my phone or taking away my toys because I know you love me and that's a good thing. It doesn't seem like something we would do. But the reality is that is what we are to do to God. When God, when we find ourselves in the midst of trials, and we know that it's not something that we did that caused it, it's just the world we live in and God's allowing it to happen, we need to go to God and we need to say, God, thank you. Thank you for, find, for judging me and for, for allowing me to experience these things. And praise him for his kindness towards us. Because God, God intends good for his people. Even those times those his actions seem harsh and brutal. I mean, think about this. He chose his chosen people. He chose the, took the Israelites. He chose them, and he, he sends them to Egypt, and then they're in slavery. He brings them out of Egypt, and then they end up ultimately going to slavery again. The northern kingdom went to the Assyrians. Later on, the southern kingdom would go into slavery with the Babylonians. They're still his chosen people that hasn't, that hasn't changed. He allows them, some of them to come back. And what ultimately happens? They get conquered by the Romans and sent into, dispersed out through nations and then they're all over the world and then you have the Holocaust. I read many stories, I've read many stories about people who were in the Holocaust and they, they praised God because they, they know that he loves them. And then there were others who cursed God. He destroyed the whole world with a flood. Everyone that was on the world except for eight people. He destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone. Did you see recently that they actually have excavated a place in Jordan where they believe that's where Sodom and Gomorrah was because what they found is they found bones and things that had a, a glass. They were, the bone, they were laying on their sides. On this side, they had like a glass covering and underneath it wasn't. And that's what the glass that the, it was created is, is usually the glass that has the same temperature. It's created where there's the same temperature as a nuclear explosion. And this is ancient. So we know it wasn't a nuclear explosion. But believe that's what they believe Sodom and Gomorrah was. Archaeology is, again, proving Scripture. At times, God's judgment can seem rather confusing, especially when, the, when we are in the midst of it. And sometimes even when we're not to blame, we're the collateral damage that happens when a nation turns its back on God. There are people who are that are faithful in that nation. There were people who were faithful in the time of Isaiah. They were faithful, but they were living in a nation that was not. So the judgment was going to affect them too. We're all being affected by the judgment that God is laying on this world right now. And even though these seemingly drastic in these judgments, God is showing kindness towards us. We are to praise Him when we see God move. Remember, watchman on the wall from last week's sermon. God has shown us great He's shown us great kindness in allowing us to exist up until this time. Think about this. He's allowed the world to get to this point. How long do you think it was? between the time when the world was created and the flood. It wasn't much more time than we have here. And we've been, it's been, if you really want to calculate it, we've been about 7,000 years plus. It wasn't that long between the time when earth was created and the flood. 
He's given us a lot of grace. He's been merciful, allowing us to, to exist in this world. He has a plan. He has a purpose. He's shown us great mercy and kindness. God, but the thing about it is, is God still has a limit to his patience. And that's what we're going to see in Isaiah 63. And here's what he says. Who is this who comes from Eden in crimson garment, garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red? This is a conversation back and forth between Isaiah and this person coming from Eden. Edom. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red? And your garments like this who treads in the winepress. He says, I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. Too bad we weren't doing this around Halloween. It's a pretty morbid description here. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought my salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. There's a lot in here to unpack. We have to approach us with a couple of questions as we run through here. First of all, where's Edom? If you go to the map, you won't find it today. And, and what is this? Where's Basra? Where, is these, where are these places? Well, Edom was a country that was south of Israel, and it, it's, its capital was Basra. Uh, the history of Edom um, with it, the Israelites goes back all the way to Jacob and Esau. Esau was the founder of Edom. We go back to Genesis chapter 25, verse 30. It says, And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Edom is actually what sounds like uh, sounds like the word for red. Um, Esau was red-haired. He was a very hairy man. And the stew that Jacob is making is a red stew made with lentils and, and beets, and it was, it was red. And so he went. So he got the nickname Edom. It's also, um, if you know anything about the Hebrew language in the in the books, so we, like the Old Testament, the, the Pentateuch, and um, the, the the actually the actual Hebrew Old Testaments, there are no vowels. So when it says Edom, the only two vowels are a D and an M. Well, Adam is also the same thing. So they had to know context. So they say, say do you believe that Edom and Adam come kind of from the same word? And the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, hated the Israelites. And it's no wonder. Jacob and Esau were brothers who fought from day one. When Esau was born, Jacob had a hold of his ankle. Like they were trying, he was trying to pull him back in. They struggled all the time, constantly. I'm sure they brought their parents much grief in their struggles. No doubt. I'm sure at times they were blessings too. We know that their mother favored 
Jacob and his the father Isaac favored Esau, and and Rebecca actually tricked Isaac into giving the blessings to Jacob instead of Esau. So Esau ran, so his brother wouldn't kill him because his brother was a hunter and he was a big man. And it was always interesting when they finally get back together again and Jacob comes forward and is bowing to his brother and his brother forgives him and says, come on, come bring all your family and live with us, be with us. And Jacob says, yeah, yeah, fine, we'll come. And Jacob goes off another way and doesn't go to his brother. I don't know if you've ever caught that in that story. He doesn't reconcile with his brother ever. So there's this conflict. When the Israelites were heading towards the promised land after they came out of Egypt, they, they actually asked the Enomites, can we come, we are your brothers, we are your cousins, we're your relatives, can we come through your land? And they were told, no, you have to go around. And when the Babylonians had destroyed Jerusalem, when the, around this time, a few years after what um, Isaiah has written here, when they were taken into captivity, the Edomites, they came and they took part of southern Judah as their own. You guys have heard of King Herod? It is believed that King Herod was part of the line of the Edomites. It was actually called Edomia at that point. And over time, if we look in Scripture, Eden began to be used prophetically as a symbol of humanity at its worst, seeking only earthly joys and persecuting the people of God. Now, another question we have to ask is, who is this coming from Edom? So you think about that. So we, we have, you can think of the physical Edom, which was the enemy of Israel, but you can also think of the prophetic Edom, which is mankind. And who's coming Look at the description that Isaiah gives. He says, His garments are crimson, red, splattered with blood, the gore of his enemies that he has slaughtered. And and this person coming forth even says, It is I, speaking in righteousness and mighty to save. Well, right there should tell us it could be only one person because there is only one person who is mighty to save, and that is Jesus Christ. This is the Messiah. He's been taking vengeance on his enemies. He's been fighting for redemption. And he's done it all alone. And that seems kind of odd. But don't don't forget, last week we mentioned this verse that says that when, when, when Christ comes back, will he even find anybody who believes? If you believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, you can say no, because we'll be gone. But there'll still be some people here who will believe, but there'll be very few. So few that no one comes to help him. No human helps him in this battle. And we'll get into, we'll go to Revelation. We'll show you where this happens. He's been fighting and doing it all alone. No army helping him all by himself. And this is Jesus Christ. And what we see is the Apostle John also in Revelation sees a very similar vision. Revelation 19. This is what John sees. He says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and his righteousness he judges and makes war. Well, that's the one coming from Edom. 
His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the arms of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. He's out at the front. They're behind him. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You see, in verse 3 and verse 6 of Isaiah 63, we, we can see this word anger. In his anger. We'll go back here. I, I trod them in my anger and trample them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained from my apparel. And then down to verse 6, I trampled down the peoples in my anger. God is an angry God. But he's also a righteous God, and he is a graceful God, giving grace to those who deserve it. And we don't deserve it because we're such good people. We deserve it because of his son. Jesus has come, and he's come with a purpose, with a cause. His year of redemption has come. The time of the wrath of the Lamb is upon the earth. This hasn't happened yet. There are two things we have to consider about the wrath of the Lamb. First, If Jesus is angry with you, you deserve it. Jesus doesn't just get angry on a whim. He doesn't fly off the handle on a whim. When he, the one time he got angry that we know of here on the earth, he was in the temple and they were selling and they were cheating people and he got mad and he turned over the tables and he whipped the money changers and he drove out the animals and he says, my father's house was to be a house of prayer for the nations and you've made it a den of thieves. And they could have had him arrested at that moment. And they didn't. Because they knew they were right. He was right. He was righteous in his anger. So if he's angry with you, you deserve it. Because Jesus normally is gentle and lowly in heart. Matthew 11, 29 says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, he tells us. For I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Kind of different than that man coming from Eden with all the bloodstains on him and having just come from battle. So if he's angry with you, it's only because you've rejected him. You've rejected his love, his tenderness, and his redemption. Second, if you have experienced injustice from other people, let the lamb fight for you. Do not seek vengeance yourself. Let the lamb do it because he knows how to fight and he will take care of it. He will avenge us to the degree that we deserve defense. He won't be, he won't do too much or too little. Now I know there are times when we we seem to doubt whether or not God even will intervene for us. We pray for it and we pray for it and we pray for it and it doesn't happen, so we pray harder and harder and harder, and it doesn't happen. We think, God doesn't listen to me. But Isaiah is going to remind us, in verse 7, he says, 
I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He says, I'm going to remind you of all that God has done before and show you who God is. You could, you know, you could tell me that you are this kind of person, that, that this is who you are, but until I see it, I have to, I struggle believing it. I believe you until you show me differently. But if I've known you for a long time and I've seen the pattern of who you are, and I've even seen you make your mistakes and how you come back from those mistakes, I can say, I know who that person is because of their past. And I know I see the pattern and they're heading for towards for the future. So he's saying, I'm going to tell you all that God has done for you. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. I mean, when, when we hurt, God hurts. That's why he tells us you need to weep with those who weep. When, you, when somebody is hurting and you go to them like, man, I don't, I don't know what to say to them. Don't say anything. Weep with them. A number of times I've been in, with people who've just lost a loved one. In fact, I'm there with the, the loved one who's passed and the person's there. And what do I do? Do I say, oh, do I try to find some Bible verse that comes up that's supposed to make them feel good, you know? Give them hope by reading parts of Revelation? No, I cry with them. I weep with them because that's all I can do. And when we weep, God weeps. He was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. God did not just come down and and, and send Moses and say, okay, Moses, you're going to go down and do this by yourself. No, God was with Moses, and God was with them. He led them in the desert, a pillar of fire during the night and a pillar of smoke during the day. It was the Spirit of the Lord who did that. And God is with us now. Christ says, I will never leave you or forsake you. He's here with us now. If we just allow him to walk with us and we rust in him and trust in him, the problem is that we don't. Not all the time. And it's interesting because in these verses, he's, Isaiah has shifted from wrath to God's love for us. And can you see, can you see in here the mercy and the goodness of God? You and I deserve the wrath of verses 1 through 6, and yet he gives us the mercy of verses 7 through 9. God is good. We deserve wrath, he gives us goodness. In the book of Jude, verse 21, he says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. What does that mean? How do you keep yourselves in the love of God? Well, how do you, how do you love somebody? Well, you spend time with them and you get to know them. If, if I don't ever talk to my wife and I'm not even ever with her, I mean, I was, I was apart for her for two days. Believe me, and she knows this, she's going to listen to this and she's not going not to disagree with me. It was a good two days. It was a one, one day and four hours. Be truthful about it. But it was good for me. I took a walk. I walked six miles in the woods in one, one time around. I haven't done that in ages. I felt good. I spent time praying, talking to God. It was good. But you know what? 
when I went home to get my wife and I brought her camping, it was good. Okay? I saw my kids, it was good. I, so if we want to, if we want to remain, if we keep ourselves in the love of God, we need to spend time with Him. We need to be praying with Him. We need to be talking to Him. And it's not like we have to have this huge prayer of, oh dear God, and be having our hands full. No, I talk to God like He's sitting right next to me, like He's my best friend standing there. Is that like, okay, God? I need, I need to talk to you right now. Just. Hear me out, you know? You already knows what I want and what I'm dealing with and what I need, but I want to tell him because he wants us to tell him. And I spend time in his word, reading his word. And I spend time listening to what other people say about his word. It says, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Waiting for the mercy. We, we have to wait that's the other thing. That I'm, looking at, I'm like, what do you mean you have to wait? Shouldn't we get it like this? No. You have to persevere. And you have to keep leaning on Christ more and more. And then you will get His mercy. And sometimes His mercy is difficult. Because His mercy may be that you have to walk through this difficult time. And things may not exactly turn out the way you think they should. But years from now you'll understand why they happened the way they did. So we must think back. We must consider what God has done for us. How God has chosen us. He died a horrible death for us on the cross to be our Savior. He shares in our affliction. He's ever-present in help in our time of need. So that no matter what the world throws at us, and the world's going to throw a lot of stuff at us, it has already and it's going to get worse. I don't see it getting any better. No matter what trends or forces are stacked against us and stacked against Christ today, until he returns, he and we will always have enemies. But I want to be honest with you. This, I was thinking about this, and this really hit me, and it's true. You know, our enemies don't defeat us. We defeat ourselves. Because look what, look what verse 10 says of Isaiah 63. He says, but they rebelled and grieved the Holy Spirit. It wasn't God who took His protection off of Israel and then all of a sudden they started started worshiping other gods. No, they chose to worship other gods. It wasn't that they, they that, that Assyria and Babylon decided to invade them. Rome decided to invade them. No, they took their eyes off of God and were not following God and that's what happens when you do that. They grieved the Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. God allowed the Assyrians to come in. He, put, he pushed the Babylonians to come in. He pushed Rome to come in. The Assyrians and the Babylonians did not defeat Israel. Israel defeated themselves by saying no to God. The United States, I just have to say, we are, we are defeating ourselves. Why? Because we have said no to God. And while we, as a people, can say yes to God, our nation, our rulers, have said no and turned completely away from Him. No matter what they say, no matter how many times they say they go to church, or how righteous they are, how they pretend, they have the National Day of Prayer, they have the prayer breakfast, they have all kinds of... They play the game. 
And believe me, like I say, there are many, many really faithful Christians in government. I wish there were more. In fact, we need to be praying that there are more people who are true believers, who are faithful, will run for office and be representatives, presidents, congressmen, judges. But as it stands right now, folks, it's bad. Because the Israelites believed they were okay. Well, we're God's chosen people. We have nothing to worry about. We think we're fine. Well, look how blessed we are as a nation. We're the largest economy in the world. God laughs from his throne. He says, really? You're nothing if it wasn't for me. And we put up our nose at God and say, we don't need you. We want to do it our way. So in the rebellion, the Israelites just turned from God. And God could not just sit idly by and allow that to happen because God is not mocked. If we grieve the Holy Spirit and how we live our lives, He will not support us. God does not support stupidity. And think about that. And I say that not because I think we're all stupid and that people who are sinning are stupid. What I think is you have a choice here. You have God, creator of the universe, creator of all things, who loves you, sent his son to die for you, and then you have these things over here that are pushed by the world, pushed by the evil one. And you're like, oh, I want that. That's pretty stupid, don't you think, in the long run. You know, the scales are kind of tipped. This is better. But God does not does not always judge so harshly. But if we grieve the Holy Spirit with how we live our lives, He will not support us. Book of James Jesus' half-brother James wrote in James 4, 6, but he, he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If we humble ourselves, he will give us grace. When we're struggling with the forces of the world, the problems in our lives, and the relationships we have with the world, we just need to turn to God, and we need to humble ourselves. The problem is our relationship with God, not with the world. We need to be saved from ourselves, and God will show us that he is a mighty fortress who can save. But in order for us to do that, sometimes we have to go through some tough times because God's trying to get us to repent. He's trying to get us to admit that we've grieved the Holy Spirit. That's what happened to the Israelites when they were in captivity. They started just... Some starts really realize, especially Nehemiah. Read the book of Nehemiah and you read his prayer at the beginning. He's just like, oh God, I, we, I know our people have done this to you. I know it, but Lord, please have compassion on us. And he does. And he prompts the king to, to supply everything that's needed for them to go and rebuild Jerusalem. We must repent. In our repentance, God will rescue us from our slavery to sin, just as he rescued the Israelites. Because here it says in Isaiah 63, verse 11, it says, Then he remembered the days of old, of Moses and his people, 
Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arms go to the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name? God did all these things, who led them through the depths, like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave rest to them. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. We think that God does all these things for us because it's good for us. No, God does those things to bring Him glory. Remember God told Moses, He told him, go to Pharaoh, and this is what I want you to tell him. This is in Exodus 4. He says, you should, tell Mo, you should tell Pharaoh this. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let me go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Pharaoh was warned. God has chosen Israel to be his people. And he, has ad- he adopted them as his people. And for us believers in Christ, we have been adopted as his people. And we now need to appreciate the fullness of God's adoptive love for us. The book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 4 and 5 says, in, the, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. He predestined there would be those who would be adopted if we would turn to him according to his purpose. We've been adopted into his family. He's committed to us. He, he's our loving father. He's committed to protect us. And what God wants for us is passion for His glory. Not for our own, but for His. He wants us to be sold out completely for Him and for Him alone. But see, the Christianity that I see today just isn't enough to meet the challenges that we're facing. It's shallow. I'm not talking here. I'm talking in the Western church. Christianity is shallow. We need God to come down. And we at all times wish that God would just come and, and fix all this. He would just come and make everything right, everything the way it's supposed to be. So Isaiah, what he does in verse 15, he prays. He says, look down from heaven and see. From your holy and beautiful habitation. I know heaven is great, God. I, I, it's awesome, but look down on us. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. Does God have inner parts? We know that the Father, God the Father is spirit, so how can He have inner parts? But literally, He doesn't have any. But but God does have deep feelings for us. What God feels for us is not just superficial or sporadic. He loves us deeply. There's no difference between doing church on your, there, there is a difference between doing church on your own power and entering into the presence of God. That's why I hope when, when, when we all come to church that we come and we, we're just, Lord, please show me your presence today. I want this to be a day of showing me your presence. Not just going through the routine of church. I want you to know, though, that, that, that Isaiah is not accusing God of not acting. He's just stating that the passion that God has for us should cause him to act. And we need to reflect that passion that we have for him because of his passion for us in our worship. It should and it must be. For verse 16 says, For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father, 
Our Redeemer from of old is your name. I think what, what Isaiah is saying here is that Isaiah would not, or Abraham would not recognize the people of Isaiah's time. I sometimes wonder if the Apostle Paul would recognize the church today. Would he recognize us? The people of God have drifted and need to experience what it means to live, a, live flat out for Christ, fully surrendered and devoted to our Savior. But, but even though we're drifted, God still calls us His own. He still calls us and loves us more than anything else in the world. We are a precious possession to Him. And anyone else, nobody else could ever love us as much as God does. I love my children. I love them dearly. I'd give my life for them. But my love pales in comparison for God's love for us. And if He loves us that much, shouldn't we love Him back the same way? Verses 17, he says, O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not? Now, why does God allow us to walk away? Why, why couldn't he just make us stay? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. This must have been after the Babylonians have destroyed it. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled like those who are not called by your name. He said, we're just like the other nations. I was listening to this morning as I was getting ready. I, I came home early and decided I wanted a shower in a real shower rather than a camp shower today. I wanted to at least feel somewhat human while I was up here on the preaching for you. I'm listening and they're talking about some of the things that are going on in the world and some of the, some of the, the laws that are being passed in England. And I'm just like, that, we're going to do the same thing. We're going to be just like all the other nations. We're going to give in to all the stuff that supposedly sounds so wonderful when in reality will lead us to destruction. We don't, should not want to be like the other nations. We need to be a bright, shining light in a world that is dark. But see, we fool ourselves into thinking that we can play around with some sin when we've, and that when we're finished with it, we can just lay it aside and you know, drop it from our lives and return to God. But that idea is not in the Bible. Nowhere. Because sin is a power beyond our control. Because Jesus told us in John 8, 34, He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is slave to sin. It enslaves us. And just as the Israelites could not Rise up, even though Pharaoh was always afraid of it, they could not rise up and free themselves. They needed a Savior to come and, and save them. And God did that. You and I need a Savior because our hearts have been hardened against God with sin. We are utterly dependent on Him. When we wander away from His ways, we no longer fear Him. Our only hope is His mercy. So where do we stand and what do we do? First of all, we need to stand in awe of the wrath of God. I, I, I'm afraid that too many times the church has like pushed the wrath of God aside. I am struggling because I don't want to do this, but I think I'm going to have to preach on Revelation. Not just the first seven churches. 
we need to know that God is a wrathful God and what is coming ahead of us. But we need to stand in awe of that wrath of God that is coming on our that's coming on our world. This is a very purpose for the second coming of Christ, is for him to bring the wrath of God. That's what Isaiah is seeing here. We need to be watchmen on the wall and warn those around us of the wrath that is to come for those who are apart from Christ. Those that we love, those that we care for, who do not know Christ, we need to warn them. We need to be interceding for those around us. We need to be people of prayer. We need to be praying for our leaders. We need to be praying for the president, that he would open his eyes and that he would see the truth. There's a bunch of other prayers I could pray for our president, but that's one we should definitely be praying. We need to be praying for those in Congress, that they would, that, that they would, they would pass laws that are just, that they would pass laws that are biblical, that would go according to what we, our country has been founded on, the freedoms that, God, that are given us from, by God. We need to pray for those who are judges, that they would judge justly according to righteousness, not according to greed. We need to pray for our mayors, our police officers, our town officials. We need to pray for our friends, our families, our neighbors. We need to pray for our church. We definitely need to pray for our church. The last prayer service was all about praying for the church. And I'm sorry I haven't gotten any of the copies of them out. I'm going to put some copies back, hopefully this this next week, of what our prayers were. And I want all of us to be praying for this church. And not just for this church, but for all the faithful churches in our world today. And we need to pray for our missionaries who are all out there, who are, who are risking their lives in places that are dangerous, and risking their lives in places that are not necessarily dangerous to them, but dangerous to the people around them. And they're bringing them in, and they're sharing the love of Christ, and they're leading people to Christ. And we also need to be praying for ourselves, that we would be faithful in our walk, because the wrath of God is coming. And we need to be people of prayer. So let's pray. Father, we praise you. We praise you for your wrath. We praise you for the day that's coming when when sin will be no more, when it'll be wiped out, that all those that sin will be gone and your righteousness will shine. Where pain, hurt, tears, anger, all these things will be wiped away. And we will have the joy of the Lord, which is our strength every day. And all this, Lord, happens not because of us, not because of what we do, but because of who you are and what you do. It is by the power of your name that we are forgiven. It's by the power of your name that this world will be made new. It's by the power of your name that people come to Christ. It's by the power of your name that we're able to go out and share the gospels. by the power of your name that we are watchmen on the wall, watching and seeing things you work in this world and proclaiming them to those around us. Help us to do that, Father. We pray this in your name. Amen.